So we're going to continue our series on the minor prophets. Habakkuk, there's multiple ways to pronounce that. And you probably hear me pronounce it those ways this morning, a couple different ways. Uh, but he is a uh, writing sometime probably around 605 to through uh, the 590s or 580s, all right? So late 7th century, early 6th century. Um, and he's writing in Judah, uh, probably connected to the temple in some way or the other. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. Now, this is God's response to uh, Habakkuk's lament. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. For work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans. Now we switch to the last, uh, the last oracle or the last words of Habakkuk, chapter 3. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. And my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. And in the last verse is an instruction. It was put to music to the leader with stringed instruments. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of many words, both within and without us, may you, the unchanging word of God, Come to us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Though the tree does not blossom. One of the stories we featured this week was um, Daniel and the lion's den. Matter of fact, that was day four. And my, three of my grandchildren were up for the, most of the week. And my youngest, currently he's in the youngest position, which is going to change in a month or so. Right? He's got some cousins on the way. But currently, Asher is the youngest, and Asher's just turned five. He's a kind of a young five. Very sweet. A very, uh, um, he's just a great little, little kid. And he loved, he loved camp. And it was Thursday, and I was, you know, he was there with me, and, and I was at the end of the day, and I was trying to get things put away. I looked down, and his little lip is quivering. I said, Asher, what's, what's wrong? He goes, I'm just so worried about Daniel. <laughs> so so uh, I said, all right, 
Asher, I'm going to tell you how the story ends. And I go, in the Bible, he, it's okay. Daniel's be okay. He looks up at me. Are you sure? I go, yes, trust me on this. Well, we walk back to my office to put something away. And the young, um, was he a high school kid or was a college? A high school kid played Daniel from Virginia. And he was really a sweet kid. And he's coming out of the room where Daniel gave the talk. And, and Asher's eyes got all big. He goes, Daniel, you're okay. And <laughs> went over and hugged him, right? Yeah. You know, another one of the stories we featured this week was the story of the fiery furnace. And I wrote about this in my blog. Um, and we all remember the miracle, right? We remember the miracle that Daniel was saved from the lion's den. We remember the miracle story where the three young Israel or three young Jewish youths, Hebrew youths, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were saved from the fiery furnace. But one of the verses that we often overlook because we're caught up in the miracle is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter three of Daniel. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Even if he does not. That's actually really the punchline of that story. You and I know the miracle. The people who first read this book, and it was written or at least compiled in its present form in the second century BCE, when Itaicus IV, who was one of the Seleucid Greek kings, literally killed thousands of innocent women, children, older people during their prayers because he was trying to turn Jerusalem into a Greek state and had forbid the worship of Yahweh. So the first people who were reading this had family members, friends, neighbors, who God didn't rescue. We don't know anything really about Habakkuk other than what we can infer from the text and speculation that comes from later sources. But given the time of its writing and the text, I'm pretty sure Habakkuk did not get his miracle either. So I need to give you a little bit of historical background and catch you up, uh, those of you who missed last week's episode, right? As we're building the minor prophets here. Two weeks ago, we looked at Zephaniah, who was part of the Josiah reform during the last decades of the seventh century. It was the most profound reform up to that point in the history of Israel. Good King Josiah, returned the people to Torah observance and soul worship of Yahweh and removed all the foreign gods and foreign priests from the temple and surrounding area. In the last years of Josiah's reign, we talked about Nahum last week, who celebrated the fall of Nineveh and the collapse of the Assyrian Empire. Only a few years later, after Nahum is written, Josiah is killed in battle by the way, in the Valley of Megiddo. You may have heard of Armageddon. That's where he died. And almost immediately, the reform ended. The Egyptians removed the crown prince from the throne and put up his Josiah's younger corrupt and violent son, Jehoiakim. 
And over the next year, Jehoiakim will tax the people, engage in building projects, will be corrupt, will persecute the prophets, including Jeremiah, and will totally go the opposite direction from his father. Habakkuk will be writing during this period and makes him a contemporary of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So that gives you a little bit of context. The Babylonians will invade Palestine and cause all kinds of destruction a few years after this is written. And they'll take the brightest and best. So this is where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, they are taken back to Babylon. The scribes, all the skilled workers, they raid the temple, they take the royal uh, jewels and everything, but they leave Jerusalem intact. And they place upon the throne a weak king, well-intentioned but weak, and who will eventually lead the nation to other destruction. The Babylonians will come back in 10 years and wipe out the city. So that's the first temple destruction. So that's the background. That's the background which Habakkuk is writing, okay? And the book is divided into three chapters. There are actually three couplets. The prophet will give a lament. God will respond, okay? And Habakkuk begins by asking the old question, God, why do you let injustice flourish? And it's even more poignant because the country had gone backwards. Under Josiah, it seemed like we finally got this thing right. And all of a sudden, overnight, we're worse off than we were before. Ever feel that way about what's going on in the world? I thought we were going the right direction here, right? Okay. There's even a section in chapter 1 where translators, including the NRSV, probably doesn't give you the right translation. Because the scribes who originally copied it down were, were, were not comfortable with what Habakkuk says. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Are you not from old? Most holy God, you will not die, will you? In other words, you're asleep at the wheel, God. That's what he's basically saying. Okay? You're, you're eternal, aren't you? But you don't seem to be doing what I need you to do right now. Denial helps us do a lot of daily tasks. that allows us to live with other human beings. <laughs> right? Okay. For instance, driving. You have, to live in, you have to live in somewhat of denial to drive, right? Okay. You're assuming everybody's going to do the right thing. That's denial. How about ordering food from underpaid strangers? <laughs> right? That's kind of, you're living a little bit in denial there, right? Giving our credit card number to a company we've never done business before. So there, there are thousands of ways that we live in denial, and, and you can't think about everything, right? Okay? You know, any of you who ever were parents of teenagers, you had to live in a lot of denial. All right? Right? I used to get mad when I caught them for doing something wrong. I said, I'm mad at you because you did it wrong, and I'm also mad at you because I caught you because now I have to do something about it. But life is full of tragedy and events that not only challenge our working myths, but challenge our faith as well. Because there are many moments, the most critical moments in this life, where denial just is not an option. And often those times really put our faith on display. 
right? Because how much denial is actually often in our working faith? How many fantasy ideas do we include in our ideas about God? Like we were talking with the kids, right? You know, God being with us doesn't mean God's going to make everything right. But we tend to live under this, I don't know if it's so much of an idea as a feeling that, well, as long as I do the right things, everything's going to work out. And God's looking out for me. And that means things are going to be okay. But that's not what happens in life. Genuine faith requires living in the real world and seeing a God who does not operate in a way that we can fully understand. Idols, you can barter with idols. You can make deals with idols. That's really at the heart of idolatry, right? It's creating a religion that you can be in charge of. But one must wait on the living God. Now, one can argue with God. Habakkuk is really arguing with God here. Habakkuk is challenging God. And for that matter, you can say anything to God. Sometimes I think we're too timid and too polite in our prayers with God. The Bible invites us to say whatever we're feeling to God. That doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's going to be happening, but the most important, I think, step in faith is to be honest. To be honest about what's really going on with you. And the living God invites that. The answers that you get, however, are both the rub and the journey. You can say anything to God that you want to say, and God invites that. But the answers... And often the answer is silence, right? I mean, I don't hear voices. <laughs> I mean, God doesn't speak to me in any kind of audible voice. What we often get is silence. And that silence can be deafening, right? I mean, that's what Habakkuk starts out with. Where are you? Aren't you, aren't you seeing what's happening down here? I cry violence and I don't see anything happening, God, right? Habakkuk is is lamenting not only what's going on in the world, but Habakkuk is lamenting that God is letting it happen and not doing anything about it. One of the great things about reading the Bible, it gives you permission to have a bolder faith and even bolder doubts at times. Because the Bible is a real struggle with what life is about and what faith is about and who God is. But sometimes that silence is also pregnant with meaning. And the silence of God is never absence, even when it feels like it. It may feel like absence, but the silence is not. Because regardless of where you are, Geographically, existentially, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Regardless, you may have forgotten your name, but God never forgets you. God is always there. 
And the quest of faith is to try to be there with God. God is always with you. Faith is trying to be with God as well. The movie Shadowlands, it's hard to believe that movie now is almost 30 years old, I think, um, is about C.S. Lewis's relationship, romance, marriage, and subsequent loss of Joy Gershom, an American widower who uh, is a fan of Lewis, and they marry. And Lewis has uh, been a lifelong bachelor. You know, Oxford Don, one of those many men of that generation, severely scarred by World War I emotionally, lost his mother as a young boy, which clouded his entire life. But he finds Joy Gershom, and he falls in love with her. And she dies as a young woman um, of cancer. And there's a scene at the end of the movie where Lewis is sitting with her son. And they're actually up in the attic, sitting in front of, he's up in front of the wardrobe that inspired the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Tales of Narnica. Narnia. Uh, if you go to Wheaton, Illinois, you can still see that wardrobe, by the way. All right. But so it's very symbolic, right? He's, the little boy is, is standing in front of this wardrobe. And they're talking. And Douglas, Joy's son, says, I prayed that God would make my mother better. And Lewis said, I did the same thing. I prayed for my mother that she would get better. And he said, it doesn't work that way. And then Douglas asked Lewis if he believed in heaven. And C.S. Lewis said, yes, I do. And Douglas said, I don't believe in heaven. And Lewis said, that's okay. And then they both wept together. And I think both Lewis's broken belief and Douglas's broken unbelief are faithful responses to the silence and tragedy of God. It's okay for Abaka to ask God, are you still alive? Are you still watching things up there? That's not where he ends up, but it's okay to be at that place. When we confront things that are bigger than us, when we confront hurts, evils, that blow up our sense of well-being, that shatter our lives, it's okay to wonder if there is a God in charge. As well as eventually saying, yes, I will trust in the good that you will do for me, God, regardless. There was an inscription on a wall in a cellar in Cologne that is where a number of Jews hid during World War II. They, they survived the war. And the inscription on the wall says this. You've probably have seen this before. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. And I believe in love, even when there's no one there. And I believe in God, even when he is silent. Habakkuk most likely saw his country destroyed by the Babylonians. There is a tradition that he was one of the exiles 
and there is a tomb that is in today's Iran that claims to be his burial place. The final oracle that comes from God promises that there's a coming day of justice and Babylon will fall for the crimes that it commits not only on Israel but on all people. But it is a justice that Habakkuk most certainly did not live to see. But Habakkuk's final words are where faith ultimately leads us. Faith is ultimately a surrender. It is a trust in the good that God will do in my life and beyond. Here once again, the last words of Habakkuk. I will quietly wait for the day of calamity to come on the people who attack us. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the field yields no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He makes me tread upon the heights. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's continue our worship by giving to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings.